Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Robert Waldinger. Dr. Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which informed the writing of his recent book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. He is also a Zen master, or a Roshi, who teaches meditation. Now, the Harvard study of adult development is considered the world's most thorough longitudinal study on human happiness. For over eight decades, the study has tracked the same individuals and their progeny, asking thousands of questions and taking hundreds of measurements from brain scans to blood work with the goal of discovering what really makes for a good life. So Bob and I cover the two main categories of happiness, hedonic well-being, also known as moment-to-moment happiness or pleasure, and eudaimonia, a Greek term which points to a broader sense of life being worthwhile and having meaning. And we get into the importance of flow state, the integration of intention and action, and the importance of letting go and being present in order to experience happiness. And we discuss Bob's experience as a practitioner of Zen meditation and why studies show that a wandering mind is often an unhappy mind. We discuss the relationship between money and happiness, between forgiveness and happiness, and between altruism and happiness. We probe the bi-directional relationship between good health and a good life, where good health contributes to happiness, and conversely, how being in a better mood actually promotes better health. And, drumroll please, Bob reveals the number one determinant for self-reported well-being, according to over 80 years of research. This was a fascinating conversation that held many surprises for me, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our programs over on the Commune course platform. If you are interested in courses on happiness, meditation, functional medicine, and Ayurveda, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, which includes more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It really makes a huge difference. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Robert Waldinger. Robert Waldinger, uh, welcome to the Commune Podcast. What a treat. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So first off, uh, congratulations on the launch of your recent book, uh, The Good Life. Um, I was only imagining the conversation you had with your publisher when they asked you, who is this book for? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, anyone that wants to be happy. (laughs) Yeah, really? (laughs) 
<laughs> and and yeah. I've never written that kind of book before. I've only written academic things before. So this was a wonderful stepping out of my usual silo. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. And there's many stories um, to follow in there, aside from very, very interesting data and findings. And, you know, of course, everyone has a, a stake in this question, what makes a good life? Um and um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that across the course of our conversation, we can slowly back into the key determinants of, uh, of a good life. But I want to, before we dive in, I want to divulge a little serendipity, which I think you'll find interesting and it may color our conversation slightly. So my wife, Skylar, um, her grandfather is a man named Ellsworth Grant. And uh, I was very, well, both of us were very, very close to him. We spent significant chunks of the summer with him for 25, 30 years and eventually cared for him through hospice in, I think it was like 2013, like 10 years ago when he was 95. Mm. So he was born in West Hartford, Connecticut in 1918 and attended, uh, matriculated at Harvard College, and he was a sophomore in 1938 oh. and, a, and a classmate of JFK, and he was an original subject in the Harvard study of adult development. Isn't that incredible? Well, I thought I knew that name, actually. <laughs> I was wondering, where do I know that? And now, yeah. So for every couple of years in his Particularly as he got older, Skyler and I would help him fill out paperwork and various surveys associated with the study. So, um, <laughs> oh no, and that's our worst nightmare that other people <laughs> fill out the surveys. Although we're glad well, you helped him, but yeah. no, we, we we didn't we didn't provide any answers. Okay. We just kind of like helped okay. him get the paperwork sorted and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was very, very dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. So not to get ahead of ourselves, but I wanted to divulge that, that serendipity because I thought it was interesting. And uh, of course, you are the current and I believe fourth director of this study. So That's perhaps right. as a means for scaffolding our conversation generally, can you describe the uh, Harvard study of adult development? Sure. So it began actually in 1938, as you said, and it began as two studies originally that didn't even know about each other. One started at Harvard College, and that's where your wife's grandfather um, yeah. was, right? And, and that consisted of 268 young men, 19-year-old sophomores, who their deans thought were fine, upstanding young specimens. <laughs> and it was meant to be a study of thriving. It was meant to be a study of normal development from adolescence to young adulthood. So, of course, if you want to study normal development, you study all white men from Harvard, right? I mean, it's now so politically incorrect, and we're constantly having to explain to NIH why they still want to fund us. But at that time, they wanted to study the what they thought were the best and the brightest for the conditions of, of well-being. And then the other study at the same time, 1938, was started by Sheldon Gluck, who was a Harvard Law School professor, and Eleanor Gluck, his wife, who was a social worker. They were interested in juvenile delinquency and particularly in how children from some of the most 
disadvantaged families manage to thrive and stay on good developmental paths, stay out of trouble, even though they were born into such disadvantage. So there were 456 boys, average age 12, who came into the study in 1938 as well. Wow. So you've had the luxury of kind of looking after what I believe is like the longest longitudinal and also prospective um, study, which provides, I think, you know, greater insight um, really ever on, on human happiness. Is that right? That's right. As far as we know, it's the longest study of any kind of depth for that yeah. many years. And it's really amazing because, you know, since that time, we've become more accustomed to kind of the human potential movement, for example, or positive psychology, um, like in the 90s and 2000s, like Martin Seligman, or even going back to um, like, well, even Abraham Maslow, um, who was somewhat contemporaneous with the study, but I think his yeah. hierarchy of needs were maybe more like 40s and 50s. And yeah. And there's like Norman Vincent Peale and like power of positive thinking, but that's kind of more in the fifties. So this, this study was really before its time because at that juncture, you know, we really have largely associated human psychology with this concept of like, what's wrong with people. Yes. Um, and yeah. very Freudian in that sense. So you talk a little bit about kind of how unique this was in and of its historical context. Right. That the way research evolved was out of medicine and psychology evolved alongside and out of medicine. And basically, medicine concerns itself with suffering and relieving suffering, uh, relieving illness. So the studies were about what goes wrong in human development as a way to try to develop means of helping people. So, but it was radical. Uh, to mm -hmm. say, okay, what goes right? And that's what we did. And as you say, it was before much of these other endeavors to look at thriving and what's positive in development. So, um, and my predecessor was unusual in that he really wanted to study how development happens across adulthood. Most of what we know and most of what we study is child development because mm. kids change so rapidly, so dramatically. And everybody thinks of that as the thing that needs the most attention. But we used to think that, you know, when you got to your 20s, you were kind of done. You know, you you were who you were going to be yeah. and that was it. Well, now, you know, you're you're chuckling and I chuckle because my gosh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how different are we from when we were in our 20s, right? So much development and change happens over the adult lifespan. So I think this field of adult psychological development and social development is one that's relatively unexplored and very rich. Mm, yeah, so true. And, you know, now in the last kind of 20 years, with these emerging fields of epigenetics and like neuroplasticity, these ideas that really point to this, uh, the idea that we're not fixed, right. that, um, that, you know, we are a constant interaction uh, with the inputs of our environment 
And uh, as you say, even after the age of 25, there's still the ability to evolve and to learn. I mean, I just learned how to play jazz piano starting at the age of 46. Yay. <laughs> so, yeah. Very, very amateur, I will say, although I had my first gig recently. Oh, um, yeah. Um, sparsely attended, but that was good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I think there is, um, you know, so much avenue for growth, particularly as we, um, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, curiosity and the importance of staying curious and, um, and being open to, uh, learning and not ossifying. And, uh, I think it's just, uh, kind of fascinating. You know, I, I wonder if you, given that happiness has been the subject of so much uh, analysis. I mean, the Greeks were obviously very uh, consumed with notions oh, yeah. of happiness. And yeah. Aristotle coined the term eudaimonia, which I know you use. Um, I wonder if you have come to a good definition for human happiness. Hmm. Well, I always return to the research on it, which has come from, for example, Carol Riff and her work out of the University of Wisconsin. Um, and the research shows that happiness falls into kind of two big buckets. One is what they call hedonic well-being. It's, am I having fun now? Right? So you and I are having this conversation and I'm enjoying it. And so that's good. But that's a moment-to-moment -moment experience. You know, an hour from now, something upsetting may happen, and I won't feel that kind of hedonic happiness at that point, right? So ups, up and down, often all day long. And then there's eudaimonia that you mentioned, which is that sense of life being worthwhile and having meaning. Mm. And, and what the research suggests is that all of us want some of both, but that some of us really prioritize hedonic well-being, the moment-to-moment -moment happiness. And some of us prioritize the longer-term well-being. There's also a third that research is beginning to explore, a third kind of well-being called a psychologically rich life, that some people prioritize the richness of experience more than they prioritize long-term meaning or short-term happiness. It's like, I want to do, do uh, exciting new things. I want to travel to new places. I want to try skydiving. I want to learn jazz piano, right? And it's not because it adds meaning to your life. And it's not even because it's fun all the time. I imagine learning jazz piano has some boredom to it. But it might be that for you, it makes life psychologically richer. And, and I know for me that psychological richness is something that I gravitate toward. So I think these three buckets of happiness are, are there for each of us to think about in terms of how much we prioritize and what we care about. Part of my... Uh and a mild obsession with jazz piano is, you know, finding those brief moments in which I become the conduit for something greater. So uh, flow state. Um, can you talk a little bit about that idea of, of 
kind of yoking, I guess, intention and action and how important that might be towards happiness? Well, that flow state that you mentioned is, is really what many people find so nourishing, rewarding, fulfilling. Um, and I'm a meditator, and sometimes that flow state is something that happens for me when I'm sitting on a cushion. I can't make it happen. It just happens. And then I'm just there, present, and I lose all sense of time. Um, and But the flow state could happen when you're, when you're playing piano, when you're skiing down a ski slope, um, when you're working in your garden, so many places. And so I think what what we think is that the people who are most fulfilled in their lives often find some place where flow is likely to happen for them. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, we are so preoccupied with discursive thought, right? Mm. So, um, and a lot of these experiences that you just described, you know, being in the garden or skiing down a, you know, well, in California, I think they've got like 50 feet of powder, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Something crazy. Um, they really point to cognitive absence in a way. It's almost letting go of thoughts kind of arising and subsiding in, in consciousness moment to moment. Yeah. I mean, what my teaching in Zen has been is that thoughts are not, they're not the enemy right? They're not to be extinguished or pushed away, that our minds are going to produce thoughts as long as we're alive. But that, you know, as you say, kind of letting go, not letting them be the whole thing, but letting yeah. thoughts just kind of be there, but then taking in everything else. And there's so much more to our life than what goes on in our little minds, the thought loops that we go through. And so to let yourself be present for all the sensations, sounds, sights, you know, that, that come to us, that, are, that reach us every moment, that that's part of the flow state where we're not yeah. just simply lost in the discursive mind. Yeah. Um, there was a paper that I started poking at, I think was written by maybe Dan Gilbert and I think maybe Killingsworth yes. was the co-writer. Yes. I think it was called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Yep. <laughs> so yep. there's so much opportunity to be distracted, particularly with pings and dings coming from every single direction, kind of in this attention economy and persuasion economy. Can you talk about that idea? Why is a wandering mind an unhappy mind? Well, what, Matt, Killingsworth found when he asked people, he would, he would ping them. It's called ecological momentary assessment, where you ask people moment to moment, like they have beepers or you, you ping them on their phones and say, is your mind wandering now or are you present to what you're doing? And what's your mood like? How happy are you in this moment? And that's how he found that when people said their minds were wandering, they reported that their moods were also less happy. And when they found, when, they, when people reported that they were focused on what they were doing, their moods were happier. So that's how he got that association. Um, and we don't know why that is. We just know that it is. 
And therefore, the more we can train the mind so that we have the capacity to be present when we want to, the more we have some control over our mood and over our well-being. That's what we find. And that's why one of the reasons why we think meditation has those benefits to mood, because it right. allows us to focus when we want to. Yeah, there was a, a curious piece of it too, which is that, like you said, you know, thoughts are not the enemy. Thoughts will naturally, you know, arise and subside in consciousness. And, and even if you have a, a kind of single point of focus, it's quite natural to kind of drift off that focus yeah. momentarily. But the suggestion was that the people that had refined the skill to to be able to return to the drishti, the gaze point, the breath, the the mantra, whatever the the tool was, the people that had that um, that skill to return back to that from distraction tended to be the people that had most self-reported well-being. Yeah, that was very curious. <laughs> and that's really what meditation is. It's yeah. It's let you know when your mind carries you off, and our minds do it all the time. And when you remember coming back to something in the present, it could be open awareness, it could be a mantra, it could be the breath, it could be sounds, anything. But just coming back to the present and that coming back to the present, it constitutes a little moment of awakening. And for some reason, that has wonderful benefits for mood and the sense mm -hmm. of well-being. And... Is that how you would describe the experience of Zazen? And maybe you could take a moment to kind of unpack what Zen meditation is like for you and your journey toward it. Gee, I never dreamed I would become a Zen practitioner. Never, <laughs> let alone a Zen teacher. Like, I'm a Jewish kid from Des Moines, Iowa. Like I was not supposed to be doing this. And I found myself drawn to meditation that once I tried it and once I was exposed to Buddhist philosophy, it so many things began to make more sense and feel right to me. And then eventually I found a teacher and a group to sit with. Um, and the experience in Zen is quite particular. You know, there are many different forms of meditation, many different ways to teach meditation. Zen focuses primarily on the breath as an object of meditation, and then gradually at times letting go of that focus and simply being present for whatever reaches your awareness. So it could be the breath, but also sounds and sensations and thoughts. Um, but it's always coming back to the present. Um, and Zen is an interesting practice for me because it has no stages of meditation. Zen, the famous mantra in Zen is, there is nothing to attain. There's, there's no place to reach. There's, there, there's no, uh, there are no levels. There's no place to arrive at. That we're already Buddha, we're already enlightened. We just don't recognize it until we do this practice. Um, so what that means is that you don't aim towards something particular. You simply sit 
and watch your mind and come back to the present over and over and over again. That's the lifelong practice of Zazen. Yeah, and it's so funny because oftentimes meditation gets uh, packaged uh, for its benefits, yeah. you know, so it'll lead to optimal performance or better levels of concentration uh, or, you know, cortical thickness or, you know, lower yeah. cortisol levels or all of these things. And it's very, very easy to connect to it for its future benefits. Yeah. But once you're doing that, you've almost lost the point a little bit, which is funny. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what it's what one of my teachers called the great bait and switch of Zen. So we come to it for that, right? I came to it because I just wanted to relax and I wanted less stress in my life. And then I sat down on a cushion and my mind went wild. And actually, it was very stressful, um, but I found it quite nourishing, and I found gradually I would calm down, but not because I could make myself do it. There was nothing I could go after and grab onto in Zen. And so the, the bait is you'll feel better, you'll get this relaxation or whatever you're after. The switch is then you realize, oh no, I'm just here to watch my big, messy heart and mind show me what's there. You know, show me what's yeah. coming up moment after moment. Is there an element of, um, well, in Sanskrit, it's uh, upeka or equanimity uh, that often gets associated with like Vipassana practice, for example, um, where, uh, you know, you're, what you're really doing is cultivating kind of these moments of sacred, non-judgmental presence. Does that also apply to Zen, this notion of equanimity and, and non-judgmental presence? Well, Zen says we don't cultivate anything. Mm. We simply let it unfold. So the idea is that you can get to a point where you realize, oh my gosh, I am judging myself and the world every five seconds. You know, and after you watch your mind do this over and over again, eventually you begin to see past it and say, oh, wow, what happens if I let this go? Right. And so it is a natural evolving rather than a, I got to stop judging here. Right? Uh, right. Similarly with equanimity, that equanimity is a wonderful side effect of meditation. I can't make myself feel equanimous. But boy, sometimes I get there by accident. And so, you know, one of the teachings, you know, in my tradition is um, that equanimity, enlightenment are accidents, but you can make yourself more accident prone. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um, it, yeah, you know, it's so simple to, I think, or so common, I should say, to fall into the trap of um, fixating on the trauma of our past and then project it into the future as uh, I can't I can't remember if this is from Daniel Kahneman or not but as as anticipated negative memories hmm. so we're almost creating negative memories in the future by focusing on the past and of course, when we're doing that, we're not here now. Right. And, uh, and that seems to be such a central component to happiness. 
there's there's a great Mark Twain quote. He said, "Some of the worst things in my life never happened." And <laughs> you know, he's talking about that phenomenon of, yeah. of taking. You know, first of all, all the stories we tell ourselves about everything that's wrong. And yes, there is real trauma, and it's you know, and so I don't want to discount that at all. But For that sure. that carrying those stories and having them seem like our destiny, that is where we lose our life, right? And that one of the things we find, and and the stories in the book of our of our participants really illustrate this, is that um, your childhood doesn't have to be your destiny, that there's there's room for lots of corrective experience in our lives, particularly in relationships, as we find good ones um, that that can correct for, some of the worst things that have happened to us in our childhoods. I also don't want to discount real trauma-inducing events, neglect and racism and abuse, and, and how we carry that forward. Uh, Peter Levine calls it the tyranny of the past, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's real and um, and really requires uh, a tremendous amount of work and to confront and, and you know now we're kind of experiencing all these breakthroughs in psychedelic therapy and ketamine assisted therapy along with talk therapy and I, I really feel like we're at this precipice of, of, of hope and optimism in, in that field and in how we relate to our trauma. Mm. But, you know, at the same time, and I, I just know this because I know I'm very familiar with the stories that I tell myself about myself. Yeah. <laughs> is that, you know, every experience of the past, memories, if you will, happen in the present moment. Right. And we have a tendency to tell ourselves the same stories about ourselves that perpetuate uh, negative cycles of suffering. And our, our memory is, is very mangy, <laughs> I would say. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that, that memories often are used to comport a, a vision of oneself at the moment and, and might deviate significantly from the actual original event itself. And uh, yeah, Alan Watts actually has a wonderful sort of image around uh, this notion of present and past. You know, we, we sort of instinctually think that the past through cause and effect creates the present, but he uses the, um, the analogy or the visual analogy of a ship. The ship actually creates the wake behind it. Mm. And so the present is actually creating the past in this way. Yeah. And uh, I wonder kind of if you've had any thoughts around that of how we can free ourselves from the negative stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Probably the best way to free ourselves is through attention. Mm. You know, often... Uh, people come to me, I, I do psychotherapy. I see therapy patients every day in my role as a psychiatrist. And 
people will come with stories about themselves. Like, you know, I, I am, you know, so many negative things that they tell themselves, you know, that um, I'm this kind of person and I'm wrong in this way. And, and one of the things that I find can be helpful is asking them simply to pay meticulous attention to how other people encounter them and how other people behave toward them. And often they're, they're surprised because when they really look, people don't treat them like they're horrible human beings. They don't treat them like they're disgusting. They don't treat them like they're all the, the names that people call themselves. In fact, they, you know, a patient will come in and say to me, you know, they treat me like I'm kind of a normal person and like they're, they're glad to be in this meeting with me. And so I keep saying, okay, we're going to keep going back. You're just going to keep looking, just keep looking at how other people encounter you as one way to understand how you're showing up in the world. And that that can go some distance to, to softening the intensity of those negative stories that we tell ourselves. Mm, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I know that, um, well, I don't know this, but I intuit this um, because of your work and your writing that you also have an interest in Stoicism. Mm. And uh, of course, Stoicism was also very preoccupied with this idea of eudaimonia and, um, and happiness through virtue, um, wisdom, justice, moderation, courage. Um, I think of the principle four virtues in Mm. in stoicism, Mm. but also there is a, um, uh, you know, one of the bedrocks of stoicism is focusing on the things that are within your control as a means to uh, achieve greater happiness. Can you talk a, a little bit about how, why that's important? Well, much is not in our control. And boy, the more I practice Zen, the more I come to see the reality that so much is not in our control. And so paying attention to what you can control um, is really helpful. You know, the the idea that, well, if you're worried about something, you know, you ask, can I have any effect on this outcome? And if the answer is yes, then you can do something about it. If the answer is no, then worry is not going to help. Um, and that to try to frame things in those ways can really ease some of the optional suffering that we layer on to our lives. The option, you know, there is suffering that we can't get out of lots of it Mm -hmm. in human life. But then there's the optional suffering, like worrying about things that we can't control that might never happen. Um, I've spent lots of time worrying about things that might never happen. And and so coming back to that stoicist principle of pay attention, okay, what what really can I control right now um, helps me to reorient, to, to reset, and to get out of my my worried mind. Yeah, there's a couple quotes that I won't attempt to summon from uh, Epictetus <laughs> or maybe Marcus Aurelius. There's so many good ones, but that that point to this idea that our emotional states are often reflections of our kind of knee jerk judgments about particular events and not really related to the underlying event itself. (laughs) Um, 
And so we, you know, especially, you know, in a 24 hour news cycle, right? So a lot of us have biases around certain things. And before we even actually have unpacked anything to do with the actual event itself, we're in a state of outrage (laughs) Mm. Um, Mm. because we have reacted to our judgment um, about something instead of the the actual thing itself. And uh, I guess this also kind of speaks to that cult being able to find that non-judgmental presence in yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, um, as we kind of delve into the sources or the provenance of happiness, um, what do people generally believe will make them happy? (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Well, the classic, you know, the classic tropes, you know, money's going to make me happy. Fame is going to make me happy. Uh, Achievement, getting lots of awards, that's going to make me happy. Um, And we see it everywhere. And, you know, when you ask young people what they're going to want to do with their lives, what they're going to prioritize, they list those things. Like the majority of them list money, fame, high achievement as the things they're going to need, you know, to have a good life. And, and yet by contrast, you know, the UN does a world happiness report every year and you can get it online and, and you can get the executive summary because the actual report is, is reams of pages of a PDF. But the, yeah. but the, but every year they do a survey all around the world and they ask people, well, what are the key elements that you need to have a happy life? And they don't include wealth, fame, or high achievement. They do include getting your basic financial needs met, you know, for shelter and clothing and food and healthcare, all that. But once you get your basic needs met, as you know from Daniel Kahneman's work, you know, once then earning a lot more money doesn't really have such a great payoff. Um, and so what we find is that the culture sells us. We sell each other these myths about what's mm. going to make us happy. You know, you and, and think about the messages we get all day long. I mean, you know, buy this car and your life is going to be more exciting. You know, exactly. serve this brand of pasta to your family and your family dinners are going to be blissful, right? You know, and so we're we're constantly given these messages. And yet truly what we find is, you know, when we study hundreds, thousands of lives is that it's actually investing in your relationships with other people that is the most likely thing to make you happy. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're going to get there and unpack that in, in hopefully some great length. It, you know, uh, certainly I can just speak from my own experience is that the moment that you you know, cut the ribbon off the new car, let's say, um, you're already focused on some other glittering object on the horizon, right? So this is the hedonic treadmill in, in action. Um, and I know, you know, Daniel Kahneman, I believe in, in 2010 had that study that seemed to point that to at least, you know, once you've had your basic needs taken care of, you know, and, and I think he, and put that threshold at like $75,000. Now maybe yeah. adjust, adjust for some inflation in the era of inflation. But, um, but has that held up? I mean, I know that there has been certain, um, you know, other studies that seem to suggest that, 
you know, money does play a bigger role. And I'm sure a lot of people could point to, well, you could buy better food or, you know, you can hire more babysitters or free up more time, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, you know, what role did you find, at least in your study, that correlates money and happiness? Well, I love that you're asking about this now because just this week, there was a new article published. So <laughs> Daniel Kahneman and Matt Killingsworth did a, it's a, I think they're calling it an adversarial collaboration because they disagreed. Matt Kellingsworth right. published an article saying, no, wait, your happiness does go up after you make $75,000. It keeps going up. And so Kahneman suggested that they collaborate and figure out, okay, what, what can we discern about which it is? And what they seem to have found is that it depends. That if you start out unhappy, then your happiness doesn't keep going up as you make more money. If you start out on the happy end of things, then your happiness keeps going up. So in terms of happiness, the rich get richer because they get more a more uh, they get a, a happiness boost as they make more money. But the take-home message for me of this newer research is that if you are looking to wealth to remedy your unhappiness, don't look there because it's not going to do that. Mm. The take home for me is that two people who disagree can effectively work together. Yes. <laughs> Wasn't that great? That's a, a anachronistic to our time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that's great. Um, and, uh, you, you know, certainly like I, I look at my own life and, you know, I started from somewhat humble beginnings, but as, you know, we've become a, a little bit more able to, um, satisfy our, our basic needs. You know, the idea of like planning trips with my family, for example, you know, even the planning part is actually as fun as the yeah. actual experiential part. Yeah. So it's almost the opportunities for creativity that some degree of, um, of disposable income, you know, opens up, but I, I you know, yeah, no, um, it's true. And, you know, they've done studies that, that ask the question, well, with your disposable income, if you have some, are you happier if you buy material things or if you pay for experiences like a vacation? And what it shows is that the that you are happier and you are happier for longer if you pay for experiences than if you pay for material objects. Uh, you know, experiences could be anything from a you know, tickets to a basketball game, to a vacation, to, and, and material objects are like, you know, this flat screen TV that's here behind me. Um, yeah. And the, they, they've actually studied the reason. And the reason seems to be that material objects lend themselves to comparison. They just beg us to compare mm, with other yeah. people. And we know that the more you compare yourself to other people, the less happy you are. And that experiences can't be as easily compared. I mean, you know, my my vacation isn't going to be the same as your vacation, even if we go to the same place. My going to the basketball game with my son isn't going to be the same as yours. So that means that we don't compare as instinctively. And we get closer mm. to often to people we care about when we have experiences together.
there's the oft said quote. I think it's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. I'm not sure, but the that uh, comparison is the invisible thief of joy. Yes, and I love that quote. And we live in an era where you just can't help almost to compare, particularly, uh, you know, in the area, in the era of social media, I have three right. teenage daughters and, right. you know, they're scrolling through, um, sort of fake images of perfection, unattainable fake images of perfection, and then feeling that pressure to match that fake image of per- per- perfection with their own fake perfection. Exactly. <laughs> And often and, uh, feeling they can't match it, right? Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, this is the greatest non-consensual psychological experiment of our time. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right now. You know, there, there, there is some research that you may know about, about how we use social media and that it makes a difference in our well-being. So the research seems to show that that using social media passively in the way that you're describing where we scroll through somebody else's instagram feed and look at their curated lives that that lowers well-being because of this mm. comparison that it raises yeah. levels of depression and anxiety it lowers self-esteem but that if we use social media to actively connect with other people it can boost well-being. So, so you know, the yeah, example yeah. is a friend of mine during the COVID lockdown reconnected with his elementary school friends, and they've started having coffee on Zoom every Sunday morning, and they're just thrilled. Like they compare notes about things that happened in the third grade, and they're they're just tickled pink by this new found set of connections, reconnections. So yeah. So the yeah. bottom line is that the the research is pointing to active connection on social media making us happier passive scrolling consumption making us less happy yeah interesting it's almost like the hedonic use of social media versus the eudaimonic use if you think of it in terms of um almost on a biochemical basis so there's a hedonic usage where it's like oh my god you know i got 10,000 likes on that particular post and I'm getting sort of a flood of dopamine motivation and reward. But of course that quickly subsides and then you're off to kind of find the next thing to post that hopefully will get more likes than that. And, you know, you're kind of again on this treadmill and that's very much kind of, you know, pleasure seeking hedonic kind of dopamine harvesting, yeah. Uh, and then you're yeah. talking about, you know, the other side, which is a more eudaimonic usage, which is actually less focused on pleasure and more, more focused on joy. And I suppose from sort of a neuromodulator biochemical point of view, more concomitant with like oxytocin or, or serotonin. So I wonder kind of in your study, did you look at kind of the uh, kind of the, some of the neurological biomarkers as it pertained to to happiness no no what you just mentioned is like way above my pay grade we didn't look at that (laughs) are you kidding but i doubt that but um but what we have we've used biomarkers so we actually bring people into our lab and we deliberately stress them out and then we watch how they recover from stress and both you know physiologically and we ask them about their experiences and so that's one way of trying to look at the biological 
reactivity of our systems and how we recover as a marker of well-being. That the idea is that people who uh, are less reactive to stressors and who recover sooner are thought to be in higher states of well-being and certainly in better health physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And obviously that, again, speaks to stoicism that put uh, a lot of importance on this notion of resiliency and mm. and building our psychological immune systems by kind of disarming an insult, by just being unmoved by it and, uh, and being able to sort of recover from stressors. And actually, I wear this aura ring. Oh yeah, measures. I see those around a lot. Yeah, it, well, they measure um, one of the biomarkers or metrics that they they measure is heart rate variability, mm-hmm. which is this other metric that that does um, indicate how your nervous system essentially bounces back yep. to to stress. So. As you continue your study, maybe that will be a no. We <laughs> use heart. We, we use heart rate yeah. variability. That's one of the things we measure after we stress people out during okay. and after. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. So, as we're kind of hovering around this topic of health, what is the relationship between you know, good health and happiness? Oh, well. It's a bi-directional relationship. So when our health is good, we're more likely to be happier. We're more likely to be in a better mood. Um, and we're in better mood when we're in better moods, it's health promoting. You know, we're less stressed, we have less fewer circulating stress hormones, less chronic inflammation. So it works both ways. They, they, you know, and they can set up both a virtuous cycle and a vicious cycle, depending on which way it's going. Yeah, I find that the downward spiral is the one that I think we're most familiar with, where, you know, you don't get a good night's sleep and then you're grumpy and grouchy. And because you're tired, you don't get exercise and then you don't eat well and then you don't treat people particularly well. Right. You know, that can be a a downward spiral, but there's also upward spirals where, you know, if you start to adopt certain protocols and, you know, you can pay attention and you get good sleep and you take care of yourself, um, that that can actually create kind of more effusiveness and efflorescence and, and generosity in your relationships. So yeah, these things are, are clearly um, very, very tied. Um, so I feel like we're, we're slowly getting into kind of what is the primary determinant for um, happiness and human flourishing. So we know that it's not really money. Um, we know that health has something to do with it. Um, certainly, you know, purpose in one's work. Um, uh, Viktor Frankl talked a lot about meaning and, and, and work. Um, but in your research, what did you find to be the number one determinant for human happiness? Yeah, it was relationships. It was the, the warmth and breadth of your connections with other people. Um, and it wasn't mm. just the determinant of happiness, it was the determinant of, of physical health. And that was actually the surprise. So, you know, it stands to reason, if I have good relationships, I'd be happier. That That's not a surprise. But how could 
good relationships make it less likely that you'd get coronary artery disease or more likely that you would live years longer. And that's what we found. And at first we didn't believe it. And then other research groups began to find the same thing. Uh, and then we began to understand that this is a very robust finding. Wow. So are you suggesting that loneliness or isolation is more correlated or is directly correlated with certain forms of chronic disease? Yes. So what they've demonstrated with good research is that people who are lonely, people who are isolated, um, have uh, weakened immune systems. They have heightened cardiovascular reactivity. Um, they have delayed wound healing. I mean, they mm. did this very cool study where they did skin biopsies, mm. punch biopsies on a group of people who were caring for demented relatives and a group of people matched for age and health and everything else who were not doing that. And the people who were caring for demented relatives, their wounds took on average something like 39 days longer to heal. And so wow. it's a very dramatic effect. What we know is mm. these physical effects of isolation and loneliness are powerful. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly um, close personal social connections can alleviate stress and the alleviation of stress can lower cortisol levels, for example, and high chronic cortisol levels are, I know, associated with depressed uh, innate immune system. So people with high mm -hmm. cortisol levels, for example, produce less neutrophils and macrophages and all these kind of innate immune cells. So, you know, you can really start to draw lines um, on a physiological basis to, you know, why loneliness might result in exactly. diabetes or coronary artery disease, et cetera. Um, it's, it's just fascinating. And I mean, obviously we're facing got an epidemic of loneliness. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that I think is that we've really sanctified a society that is very focused on the individual and individual accomplishment and achievement kind of at the expense of collective achievement. Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I look, you know, um, kind of just have my children and like how they're growing up, um, where, you know, often in front of screens, et cetera. And it, it's, it's, it is a, a source of a lot of concern is that have we lost this, um, ability to cultivate close, uh, relationships because we're, we're sort of so removed from it. And, and obviously that was accelerated by COVID. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, so in your analysis of a lot of the Harvard um, study data, were you able to kind of untangle um, some of that data to show kind of specifically that folks with more social connections tended to report as, as happier? Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And they yeah. were healthier. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so, and what we found was that the people who were best at this were active in maintaining their social connections. Um, and that's why we, we coined this phrase social fitness in the book. And because what we found was that it was really analogous to physical fitness, that the people who were best at this and therefore happiest and healthiest were the people who actively took care of their relationships as they went through their lives. So, you know, everybody was busy, you know, with jobs and family and lots of obligations, but there were people who regularly made sure they connected with friends and family members, regularly invited people over, joined clubs, uh, attended houses of worship, did all kinds of community activities. And those people were those well-connected, happy, healthy folks in our study. Mm. Yeah, I love that term, social fitness. It's immediately resonated with me as someone who uh, tries to work on my physiological fitness. It's it's easy to go in and, and on some level and do some push-ups and pull-ups because it's very quantifiable and you can kind of make yourself do it. Um, but I'm wondering, are there similar techniques to um, for social fitness as there are for physiological fitness? Well, there are. And the, the techniques are about repetition, about consistency. So what we find is that it these are not Herculean efforts you have to make to stay socially fit. Right. But it might mean when you're done listening to this podcast, think of somebody you sort of miss and you aren't as connected with as you'd like to be and send them a text or send them an email or call them on the phone, you know, just do that. And if you did that with someone in your life once a day or even once a week, you would start noticing that your connections are stronger. You know, if you, mm. if you regularly make plans to go for walks or have coffee or do something with a friend, um, that those people will be more in your life and they will be more uh, connected to you through those small, consistent actions. Sort of like, you know, you don't just go to the gym once and say, good, I'm done. I, I did my workout. I don't ever have to do that again. Same with social fitness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, Bob, did you find um, in your analysis um that the dispositive factor was the number of overall connections or the number of actual very close connections that people had? Well, as usual with human beings, it's complicated. So yeah. what we find is that, you know, all of us are on a spectrum from being shy to being extroverted. And what that means is that we're going to vary a lot in how many people we need in our lives. So shy people need a lot of alone time and they refuel by being alone. They might need just a few people in their lives. Um, extroverted people get their energy from others and they need a lot of people in their lives. So it's really quite an individual matter. Like how connected do you feel and do you have enough of what you need? Um, but what we do find in our study is that we think everybody needs what we call a securely attached relationship, uh, mm -hmm. meaning somebody who you feel will be there for you when the going gets tough, somebody who will have your back. 
um, when actually at one point we asked our original subjects, um, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And most people could list several people in their lives, but some people couldn't list anyone. And some of those people were married and they couldn't list anyone. And we think that those people are the people who are in trouble, who are not connected in vital ways. You know, loneliness can actually be a reflection of a loneliness with yourself um, in a way where um, that, you know, we all crave a certain kind of belonging um, in society where we can maintain our own authenticity and still be accepted. Um, that's sort of kind of the delineation between fitting in and belonging. Sometimes as a young person, I grew up all over the world traveling and you know, being toted around by my parents and having to learn new languages and go to new schools all the time. And I was always trying to fit in, you know, mm. I was willing to kind of chameleon myself to, yeah, you know, con to connect. And then, you know, that, that was, followed me through a lot of my adult life and I always felt like oh man I've got to change myself in this particular situation to fit in you know and then finally kind of came around it's kind of moment of personal satori of that there was a difference between fitting in and belonging yeah and what I was really looking for is a uh, a community where I didn't have to sacrifice who I authentically was, who was just, you know, accept me warts and all. Yes. <laughs> I could just yes. you know, show up tired and not my best self on a particular day and still be loved and, and hugged. Um, but, but I think a lot of people have that same problem with themselves where they've sort of invested a lot in, the symbol that they have for themselves, which is, you know, maybe the ego, which is kind of the stockpile of societal labels that you, mm -hmm. um, that you collect and, uh, and you're never good enough. Um, you mm -hmm. never feel mm -hmm. like you're satisfactory. And in a way that's a sort of a loneliness with yourself. And in some ways I think, you know, you really have to address that in parallel with addressing your outward social connections, because I think those two forms of loneliness can often go hand in hand. Well, and they're very much related. Um, mm. One of the things we did when, when our people got to be in their 80s, we asked them, looking back on your life, what are you proudest of and what do you regret the most? And one of the most common regrets was, I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought. And mm. there was that sense of, I, I didn't let myself be myself, my authentic self. Um, it's hard to do, as you're saying, especially, you know, if like in your situation, you were, you know, you were in environments where to survive, at least emotionally, you needed to try to fit in. But at a certain point, we all need to say, what feels like me? Um, I'm reminded of that wonderful Oscar Wilde quote. He said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Um, it's like <laughs> you can get to a point where you say, okay, you know, 
being being somebody else yeah. trying to fit in is just not not a viable path that's right liking me is not your job bob it's my job yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so so interesting uh, i mean you know um kind of back to my wife's grandfather ellsworth you know he lived until he was 95 and one of the real legacies that he was very, very committed to was family. And, you know, we had this kind of funky old summer cottage uh, that, uh, on the Connecticut shore that, you know, wasn't winterized or anything, mm. you know, it was pretty, you know, the deal. Um, and uh, very, very, very old school. And he was absolutely committed all the way up until his last year to spending, you know, the summers there at this house. Yeah. And really all he wanted was to sort of be, particularly in the later years, was to be kind of propped up on the porch in a rocking chair. He didn't, and just to survey the scene and I had young children and they were running around and, you know, they would come up and kind of attend to him from time to time. And we, everyone called him grand man and, you know, they would go in and get him a glass of lemonade and all that kind of stuff. And for him, that was the mark of success. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, then on the other side, you know, he also grew up and, and I'm wondering if you kind of found this phenomenon with other subjects. You know, he grew up in this era, you know, when uh, he was born in 1918, and he was part of sort of the greatest generation. Mm. And that generation, particularly of men, had a very hard time being emotive and affectionate. It wasn't, it just wasn't something that was kind of part of the culture right. then. And I know that if he had any regret, it was it was that that he couldn't quite break through and like tell people that he loved them or you know really yeah. like get affection with them and i wonder if you found that that was uh common and whether or not that's changed as society has changed well you know we have a story in the book about a man who was typical in that mm -hmm. way um he thought he had a great life and he had, you know, loved his kids, loved his wife. They had a good marriage. His kids and his wife kept saying, Dad, you never express anything about yourself. You never show us how you really feel about anything. And he began to understand that there was some way in which he was unable to connect. And for him, it was like, look, everything's fine. What? What's wrong here? And everybody else was saying, we miss you. We want more of you. And I think that kind of disconnect is something that may have been generational, mm. particularly for men, um, you know, depending on how they were raised, how they were socialized. Fortunately, I think men are being socialized differently now to, to see emotions as a sort of vital, central part of our lives and our relationships. But, but that, that generation, it, it was quite the norm to be buttoned up. Yeah. Do you have kind of personal happiness practices? Obviously, you're, you're a meditator, but have you been able to leverage 
in your own life, what you have been able to glean from a lot of these studies. Right. Do I practice what I preach, right? <laughs> well, wisdom yeah. is taking your own advice. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but it, but it really it really did affect me. Um, you know, look, I'm a Harvard professor. I mean, I could work 24-7 and I was working a lot. And once my kids left home, my kids were a wonderful reason not to work all the time. And I, you know, the thing I would do is I'd drop everything when my kids wanted to hang out with me because it was wonderful and it was rare and, you know, precious. Mm -hmm. But when they left home, I realized that my default could just be working nonstop. And I began to understand that if I didn't do this active connecting that I talk about, that I was, I was going to have nobody in my life. And so what I'm much more active about now is making sure I have plans. I have a walk planned with a friend tomorrow, another walk on Sunday. I've got people who I regularly have dinner with. I have a couple of people who I have breakfasts with. Um, you know, and so I've made it a point to make sure I do this. Um, my co-author, Mark Schultz, and I have a regular mm -hmm. phone call on Fridays. We've had it for 25 years. And yeah, we, you know, we talk about our research and our writing together, but we, you know, we also talk about our lives. And and I find that those active connections are really important. So so yes, I'm trying to keep taking my own medicine, but I have to do it every day, every week, as I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cultivating good relationships is, is very gratifying. Um, and perhaps more challenging is actually repairing broken relationships. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just spend a moment talking about kind of forgiveness or how we go about repairing broken relationships and, and that relationship with happiness? You know, it, it's easy, especially when we talk in this way to get for people to get the impression that, well, your, your relationships are supposed to be smooth and it's all supposed to be kumbaya all the time. And no relationship is like that. No relationship of any significance. You know, there are always disagreements, disappointments. And what we know is that when people work out disagreements, relationships get better, they get stronger. And so the the key is not to have no disagreements or difficulties in your relationship, but to find ways to work through them together so that everybody comes out feeling like nobody's won or lost and everybody's gotten through it and you're going forward together. I mean, the other thing that, that my Zen practice helps me see is how often I sit there and say to myself, I want this person to be different from who he or she is, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, how often do I sit and watch a bird in a tree and say, oh, I want that bird to be a little different? You know, no, I don't do that, right? So we think if we think about other people as just manifestations of life and different manifestations of life, then it's not about making anybody different. It's about being with and and finding ways to to work with the ways that we all are together including yeah. the difficulties 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like thoughts arising in consciousness. You get, you look at it, you witness it, and you come back to the breath. You know, that these things are processes that relationships that are good might take a bad turn. And it's your ability then to address those and, and forgive, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about forgiveness as a gift, you know, that you give to somebody else. Um, but of course, we, we absolutely know from direct experience that it is the gift that you give yourself, right? I mean, the absolutely. Buddha talks about kind of holding the ember of resentment and looking, waiting for that moment to throw it, you know, at someone who's wronged you right. and, you know, who's getting burned that right. whole time, right? right? right. So, um, but this is hard. I mean, I, I, I interviewed, um, I can't remember what his name was now. Um, it's kind of a uni- from the University of Wisconsin. He's one of the most preeminent um, uh, thinkers about forgiveness, and oh, okay. um, and he, you know, often would say, you know, forgiveness can start in the head. You know, we can understand that it's a gift that we give ourselves, and we can understand that forgiveness does not forsake accountability or justice, but to actually feel it in your heart yeah. is is the next you know, challenge. Um, and, uh, certainly I've had experiences in my own life where I've held resentment for way too long and I was the one who was suffering, you know, I I wasn't sleeping, I was gaining weight and then I was, you know, probably drinking an extra glass of wine or two and and none of that (laughs) uh, led to a positive result. So, and then finally, you know, Nirvana blowing out, right? You yeah, know, you, yeah. you, um, you let go yeah. and, um, and you can really benefit from that. Um, so I wanted to ask you just another question or two. Um, one about altruism and, and charity. Did you find, uh, any correlation between self-reported well-being and philanthropy? Yes. Yes, that, you know, what we find and many studies now find is that people who broaden their sphere of concern to others and take care of others, you know, it could be through causes you care about, could be through mentoring people, could be raising your kids, so many ways, but, but concern beyond the self and the small sphere of me and mine, that those people feel more that eudaimonic well-being. They feel like my, my life matters. My life is worthwhile. And that those people are happier. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, Eric Erickson talked about generativity. And we found that the people who were most generative, particularly from midlife onward, um, were the people who felt the greatest contentment with their lives and felt the best about themselves. Yeah, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about this um, before, but I wonder if you found this phenomenon. I mean, and this idea is very baked into like Hinduism, for example, they have the ashramas, so different stages of life. Mm. Um, you know, you brahmachari, you're the student, and then you're kind of the householder, and, you know, you're raising your children and making your mark in society. Uh, and then you literally become in, in Hinduism a forest dweller. Yeah. <laughs> I think is the yeah. um, and kind of on your way to being a sannyasin or a sage. And then you know this is 
an idea that Carl Jung wrote a lot about in terms of the second half of life is, is, is sort of the pursuit of the true self and, and you've already established your ego, et cetera. Do you think happiness is more associated with the second half of life as you become more, I guess, spiritually mature in some ways? Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that we get happier as we get older. So mm -hmm. literally as a species, our mood on average gets better as we get older. And it's documentable from about the mid forties on. Really? Yeah. Huh. There's wow. a, an investigator at Stanford, Laura Karstensen, who does a lot of work on what she has called the positivity effect, where essentially what we know is that the mind's bias when we're younger is toward the negative. Like we mm. notice and we remember what's negative out there. And we think that's adaptable for survival, you know, to right. scan the right. horizon. But then as we get older, that bias shifts toward a positivity bias, which means that we're more likely to remember and retain the positively valenced information that comes our way. Uh, and what that seems to have to do with is the awareness that life is finite and short, that, that mm. instead of making us more depressed, it actually makes us prioritize well-being more and stop deferring gratification as much. So yes. I can't say that it's because we gain greater wisdom, but there is this normal process that seems to move us toward paying more attention to what's positive in our lives as we get older. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, in Stoicism, there are kind of what's often considered negative visual visualizations. So there's a practice that I'm sure you're very familiar with called memento mori, which is sort of reflections on one's own mortality. And in Buddhism, I think it's Maranasati, um, which is a sort of a tradition of meditations focused on one's inevitable mortality. And you know, at first those practices could appear kind of morbid, but actually it's very much the contrary is what they do is that they invoke a feeling of gratitude for everything that you have right here, yep. right now. Yep. And you become, uh, you know, more, I suppose, just kind of thankful and uh, appreciative of even life's smallest gifts. So it's interesting, um, you know, and then it's also really interesting that you point to sort of that our human negativity bias is associated with our biological imperative to survive, right? So mm. that this, of course, was very adaptive on the Serengeti. Yeah. Um, less adaptive maybe on the savanna of Facebook or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it seems to me that, you know, as we age kind of in our early part of our life and through adolescence and we label everything in our field of consciousness um you know and, and that starts in a very prosaic manner like you know there's a car and there's a bird or whatever when we're kids but then as we get older you know there's a person of a different political affiliation or a different sexual orientation or a different um skin color or a different status in society and as we do all of that labeling 
we are inherently sort of labeling the self and building up kind of this kind of false understanding of who we are and that's mm. kind of the ego if you will um and then you know for me at least it was somewhere around 47 48 all of a sudden i had sort of a kind of spiritual awakening and life became sort of a u-turn of shedding uh, a lot of those cloaks of identity and all of the, a lot of those labels that i was giving myself kind of in relation to society and what society thought of me and how i was judged through the eyes of others so mm. yeah i think it's interesting um you know whether or not uh, this idea um i mean i'm fascinated by just the idea that we seem to improve our mood in the second half of life Fascinating. yeah 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 cool well i i just love your curious mind and i i just found so much of the book really fascinating and obviously beautifully written and and just peppered with really interesting stories that i think can give us a lot of insight into um into the good life so very very grateful for your work well thank you robert waldinger thanks so much the good life lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness um thank you so much for your work thank you for having me Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robert Waldinger. It illuminated so many rich details about happiness that I'd like to leave you with a few key takeaways. So number one, being present and actually thinking about what you're doing promotes happiness. Number two, there is a bi-directional relationship between good health and happiness in that good health contributes to self-reported well-being and being in a better mood promotes better health. And lastly, research shows that the number one thing that you can do to experience happiness is cultivate good relationships, which includes repairing the ones that might have gotten broken along the way. Okay, I urge you to Check out Dr. Robert Waldinger's new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness, to learn more about the topic and to leverage it to figure out ways that you can experience more happiness. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you likely have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation week over week. And we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free for 14 days, no strings attached, at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with any questions or suggestions at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. 
My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.